Well, good morning, friends. Please do turn back to our final installment in this wonderful book of Esther, page 415 in the Visitor's Bibles. Esther, chapter 9, verse 20, through to chapter 10, verse 3. The enemy has been defeated emphatically. God's people have entered at last into their rest. But for the readers of this story, the real battle isn't yet over. There are dark days ahead. And until God's people are truly home, the writer has one more thing he wants them to know. And so let's pick up his final words in verse 20 of chapter 9. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Judeans who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, those near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same for every year after year as the days on which the Judeans rested from their enemies and as the month that was overturned from them from sorrow into joy and from morning into a day of celebration, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing, days for sending portions of food each to his neighbor and gifts to the needy. So the Judeans accepted what they'd started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamdatha, the enemy of all Judeans, had schemed against the Judeans to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, he'd cast lots to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing, let his evil scheme that he schemed against the Judeans return upon his own heads, and let them impale him and his sons upon the spike. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. And so, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they'd faced in this matter and what had happened to them, the Judeans firmly obligated themselves and their seed and all who joined them without revoking it, that they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year after year, that these days should be remembered and kept by every generation after generation clan after clan, province after province, city after city. And they did not revoke these days of Purim among the Judeans. And the remembrance of these days was never to cease among their seed. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, wrote, along with Mordecai the Judean, with all authority to establish this second letter about Purim, and he sent letters to all the Judeans, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Judean and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they obligated themselves and their seed with regard to their fasts and lamenting. The command of Esther established these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. And King Ahasuerus 
imposed tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai for which the king had raised him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Judean was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Judeans, and he was delighted in by the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the good of his people and spoke peace to all his seeds. Well, let's pray. Loving Father, we pray that through these words, we would meet the King who seeks the good of his people, the King who speaks words of peace to us, the King who his brothers delight in. Come to us, be with us. Help us to glory in you. Amen. Well, there are times when the story finishes and you need to have a little chat. Uh, some stories are so good that you just have to process them, share them with someone else. Other times you need to make sense of what has just happened. We've been reading the original grim fairy tales this week and they are grim. There have been a few nights where somehow it just hasn't seemed right to close the book and tuck your stunned children up into beds. There was the boy rewarded with the princess's heart for the heroic deed of tricking two little kittens into a carpenter's vice and then clubbing them to death. And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> Apart from the kittens, of course. The end. There was a story that ended rather abruptly with a mother-in-law being boiled alive in a barrel of hot oil and poisonous snakes and off the bed, kids, sweet dreams. You can't do it, can you? Because you're all left thinking, what on earth was that all about? Well, the book of Esther has been a brilliant story, wonderfully well told, but the writer doesn't want us left in any doubt as to what it was all about. And so he's built his post-story chat right into the book. At first glance, these last few paragraphs might seem a little obscure to us, just shoehorned onto the end. All the incredible suspense of the story's been lifted, the action is over, and he's banging on about the importance of a Jewish festival that God didn't originally command for his people, and you and I don't consciously celebrate. But for the writer, these last few paragraphs are the whole point of his book. Here is why I've been telling you this story. They explain why we do what we do and why it is so important. Notice they aren't just tagged on to the end like an afterthought. All that beautifully crafted symmetry that we've talked about hugs these paragraphs right into the story. It's a book that began with the Persians under the command of their king, feasting for days. Remember that grotesque show of compulsory fun and compulsory smiles in the palace. And the book ends now with God's people feasting for days, right until the end of time, 
by command of the man painted as their king. And their smiles aren't forced. They impose this on themselves. They well up from their own hearts. It's a book that began with the greatness of King Ahasuerosh, but it ends, verse 2, verse 3 of chapter 10, with the greatness of Mordecai. It was a book that began with that ridiculous edict from a weak and pathetic king foreshadowing the terrible edict of death that would come later. Remember, he sent a command to his entire empire, a command, we were told, that cannot be revoked. But even his own command just mocked him, a demand that all women everywhere respect their husbands. Now the book ends with another command from another king, and it's slightly hidden in our translations, but chapter 9, verse 26, 28, this one too is irrevocable. It cannot be revoked. Not a command to respect, but a command to rejoicing. It's as if the whole structure of this book is asking that question again, who is the true king of kings? What have we seen? Whose word truly stands forever and cannot be revoked? The book began and it ends with something being written down in the Chronicles, with history being recorded. But whose history will the world truly remember? So you see, these obscure-looking paragraphs, they're not just tagged on as an afterthought. All along, he's told us this gripping tale because the writer has wanted to be preparing us for this fireside chat. And the message is hammered home at the end so repeatedly that we can't miss it. Will you remember? Will you remember how much the hidden God has done for you? Will you remember this epic unbelievable reversal that he brought about in your darkest days, and will you keep rejoicing in it? You see, the readers of this book, they're not living in the comfort of the Persian court, enjoying Mordecai's protection. The readers of this story will be living decades later in far darker times, maybe still scattered across the world, maybe back home in Israel, but still somehow feeling like exiles and strangers, a long way from the glory days, still ruled by strange foreign pagan powers, still without a true king and a true priest. And maybe God still feels pretty hidden and far away from them. So you, can you see then why our writer has written them this story. He wants to show them that in the darkness of exile, in a world where you and I still don't feel at home, it is still the good God who holds the dice. And it is still his good Messiah who will bring us rest. And in the years to come, they'll need to remember how gracious he was to them at a desperate time like this. First, Mordecai writes to tell them that in verses 20 to 22. 
How do you remember all this, guys? Well, you keep on doing what you did so spontaneously that very first year when you were wonderfully delivered from death and the good God gave you rest. When he turned your sorrow and mourning into joy and celebration, what did you do? Well, you rejoiced, didn't you? And you remember by rejoicing year after year after year. And not just that, you remember by rehearsing his goodness, sharing food, making sure everyone could rejoice with you. It's, it's why we give gifts at Christmas, isn't it? Because what could possibly be more natural on the day that God sent his son into the world to rescue us out of desperate need than by joyfully sharing that same generosity, that same thing wells up in us, doesn't it? We want to give others what they don't have, just as God gave us what we don't have. We rehearse his grace. Think of Scrooge. The first thing he does when he understands his forgiveness is he rushes out to buy the biggest turkey he can get for someone else who is very hungry. Grace is infectious. It overflows in joy and kindness. So never forget, says Mordecai. And then verses 23 to 28, the Judeans themselves commit to the same thing. The judgment of this man, Mordecai, now acting as our king, our Messiah, is absolutely right. How could we ever let ourselves forget that wonderful rescue? This is grace we need to bind our children to remembering forever and ever. Even the outsiders we welcome into our homes for the rest of time, we will rejoice and remember. And then finally, verses 29 to 32, in case we haven't got it yet, Queen Esther and Mordecai write another letter together this time, words of peace and truth to all God's people everywhere priest and king together, confirming everything that's been said. God has given us peace. We must never forget it. And just as we committed ourselves to fast and to lament when that decree of death went out across the world, verse 31, so we have to commit ourselves now to rejoicing and giving thanks that the good God has decreed life and grace. Because what is a wonderful story if nobody applauds at the end? Can we really have heard if we haven't rejoiced and praised? Isn't it beautiful, though, that we have a God who wants joy for his people? That in itself is a profound, wonderful thing. I don't think it's something that's Immediately obvious in a world so full of sorrow, we have a God who wants us to be happy. He wants the best for us. We don't please him by whipping ourselves and wearing a hair shirt and denying ourselves good things and living miserably. We please him by remembering what he's like. And we remember what he is like when we feast, when we share food with our neighbors, when we rejoice. A clear message then, hammered home, Again and again through this last chapter and a half, the whole point of this wonderful story is to bind God's people to remembering and rehearsing and rejoicing in God's grace. 
especially when it's hard and God seems hidden. And there are two things in particular that the writer seems to focus on as he brings his story to a close, which will help God's people rejoice through the dark years to come. Number one, remembering this wonderful story will teach us to rejoice because the good God still holds the dice. Now, where is the good God on the last page of this book? If you read it superficially, well, just like the rest of the story, it seems like he's nowhere at all, doesn't he? That's been the whole point. God has seemed so far away. And so some people argue that Purim was a totally secular holiday. It wasn't something God instituted at the beginning. It's got nothing to do with God's. But look a little more closely, and God's fingerprints are absolutely everywhere. And the place where that is clearest is in the name the Judeans give to this new festival. Verse 24, what shall we call this strange story and this strange day when the powers of darkness were turned on their heads? I know. Let's call it dice. Lots. Chance. It's ironic, isn't it? Deeply ironic. Imagine naming an entire Jewish festival after the moment your enemy sat down with his poor to play dice with the devil. Back in chapter 3, remember, Haman had cast those dice out of a relentless, obsessive hatred. He'd gone through every last day on the calendar, throwing his lots and trusting his scheme to the powers of darkness asking them what would be the most propitious date to destroy every last seed of God's people. And so what is it saying to call this day of celebration Purim? It's saying that from the moment those dice left Haman's hands, Israel's fate was in the hands, the loving hands of the God of Providence. God is hidden in plain sight in the very name of this festival because that name is laughing at how even as the enemy schemes his darkest schemes, the hidden God of love is telling the story he wants to tell. It would be like us naming Christmas after Ouija boards or something, dark and sinister, the day God was born to destroy the work of the devil or naming Easter Sunday, something like Drag Queen Story Hour. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But it's not celebrating that dark thing. It's taking this dark, horrible, twisted thing our culture's into and laughing at its inevitable defeats. Because the moment of resurrection was where God made a mockery of those powers of darkness. He took the ugliest thing ever done in this world, the murder of the king of love. And he told the most beautiful story ever told, a story of grace for sinners. And so if this whole book has been written to teach us how important the Feast of Purim was, then it's the name that they gave to that feast, which tells us what it's all about. The big thing they wanted to remember on that day was how at absolutely every stage of the story, even when things 
seemed utterly hopeless and he seemed utterly invisible, the good God was turning the pages. Think of that whole great big unbelievable series of unfortunate events. One queen who just happened to have enough and put her foot down on one particular night where she was done with performing for a drunken king. The one Jewish girl picked out of all the thousands of beautiful girls in the empire to replace her. The conspiracy against the king, which Mordecai just happens to overhear years before any good comes of it. The night the king just happens not to sleep and the officials just happen to read him the right page of the right book about Mordecai's unrewarded deeds at the very moment when Haman just happens to turn up demanding Mordecai's death. Haman just happening to trip horrifyingly at Esther's banquets and fall awkwardly on the queen just as the angry king happens to walk back through the door. All summed up in those demonic dice which just happened to pick out a day for wonderful salvation when the devil had meant to pick the opposite. I wonder if it's even hinted at in the way they celebrate the story in verse 25. What a strange thing it is they say there. Did you notice that? Haman schemed his scheme, but when it, or perhaps when she, Esther, it could be either, when she came before the king, the king gave orders for it to return on Haman's head, did he? I missed that at the time. If he did, it was a very passive kind of giving orders, wasn't it? At the time, it seemed much more as if the king just left it to Esther and Haman to do as they pleased. But there was a king whose unseen hand was clearly over this whole story, one true king of kings, whose word is truly irrevocable. Every step of that story felt terrifying and breathless and totally chaotic to the people in the middle of it all. But at every single step, the good God was working powerfully to bring about his great unwind of sorrow. And there is not a moment that goes by when the good God isn't watching over you and doing just the same. Unwinding the tears and the sin that grips our hearts and the death that's gripping our bodies and using it all. John Newton apparently put it like this. Every drop of rain hits its appointed target. That's providence, isn't it? God so rules the world, says the Heidelberg Catechism, that rain or drought, health or sickness, prosperity or poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And we are so completely in those fatherly hands that without his will, not one hair on our head can move or be moved. It doesn't feel like it. But even as we decline into old age and everything around us seems to fail, we are living through the good story of a good God. None of it chance. Nothing that we go through an accident. 
and every single story he tells ends well. So rejoice, because the good God still holds the dice. And then secondly, rejoice, because his good king still holds the future. When we first opened this book, it was like stepping through some magical wardrobe, wasn't it? We were pulled by great, powerful forces into a strange, exotic world where the colors were dazzling and even the couches were made of gold and everything seemed full of drama. But as the writer puts down his pen, it's as if he snaps his readers back to their own day. And instead of gazing at this strange tale from the past, he wants them to think about their future. I wonder if you noticed how strongly optimistic and future-focused this ending is. Verse 20, who does Mordecai write to? There they are scattered in exile. He writes to all Judeans near and far. It's echoing Israel's great hope, isn't it? The hope of her prophets, that one day all those scattered children would be one people again, gathered under one king. And then those notes of optimism, they carry on. When are they to remember this wonderful salvation? Year after year after year. Who's to remember it? Well, their seeds. We hear about them, the seed, again and again. In fact, it's the very last Hebrew word of the book. The children God promised them and that the enemy tried to blot out from history. The seed who would give this world our Savior. And not just that, verse 27, but all those who are joined to them. It's another reminder of God's covenant promises that this people would bless all the world, that God's grace to them would overflow. And then in verse 29, the final letter comes very emphatically, not just from Mordecai and not just from Esther, but from both of them once again acting together. There may be no proper priesthood, and they may have no proper king, but there are these two working side by side, the one who intercedes and the one who now rules, a picture, just a little picture of everything they're hoping for. But the clincher comes in verse 10. What are we shown as the final curtain falls? Well, it's a scene where everything looks so right and yet it's all so wrong. There is peace, there's order imposed on the world, tribute, tax, imposed right across the empire from the land to the farthest shores of the sea. And it's how things are meant to be, isn't it, in the Messiah's kingdom? Remember his promise? All the kings of the world would pay tribute to God's king, except that this isn't. God's king. This is still pagan Ahasuerus. But at his right hand, verse 2, sits Mordecai, our exalted suffering servant, a true king, even if he's never given the title. Here is one raised to the right hand of the king of kings who, verse 3, seeks not his own interest, but the good of his people. 
Here is one who speaks words of peace and of truth. The good king. And his rule, his good rule brings joy to his brothers. It's beautiful at the end, isn't it? They delight in him. And with that little tiny shadow of the good king at his right hand, the Persian empire flourishes. They get a little anticipatory taste of the blessings of the Messiah's kingdom. And it's all meant to leave his readers looking forward, doesn't it? Longing for the real thing, for the rest-bringing king who we can delight in. You see, remembering isn't really about the past. Remembrance is about confidence in the future. We look back at what God has done because that is what reassures us about where we're going. It took a far more perceptive scholar to point this out for me, but look when this Feast of Purim was actually to be celebrated. Wikipedia has a list of 30 different countries who all have their own holiday called Victory Day to celebrate the day a great battle was won. That's the normal thing to do, isn't it? You celebrate the moment of triumph. But look when this holiday comes, not the day of triumph, but the next day, the day they enter into rest. In fact, verse 22, it has to be celebrated over two days because the enemies were crushed on different days in different places, and they have to make sure you celebrate on the day when everyone is given rest. This was a celebration for people who have found to their utter astonishment that that long-decreed wave of death has passed over them, and yet by God's mercy, the enemy is gone, and they are still alive to enjoy the peace. And that was always the great longing in God's holy wars, wasn't it? Safe in my promised land, I will give you rest from your enemies. And so right from the start, just like the Sabbath, Purim was set up to point forwards to the good king who would speak peace to his people. Come to me, all you who labor and I will give rest for your souls. The king who sought our good and bought our peace, even as he hung in shame, impaled on a tree. But this whole book has been shaped like the good king's life, hasn't it? This has been a sorrow and death to life and joy shaped book, a resurrection shaped book where God works his great unwind through the most hidden and surprising ways possible. Well, what could be more hidden and surprising than conquering hell through death on a cross? But there he is, the good king who holds you secure forever and ever. And above all, when it's hard, when Everything is dark when we feel beaten down and guilty and condemned. It is him we need to remember and hold on to and rejoice in. The good God who still holds the dice and his good king who still holds your future.
So then, Christians, when is our Purim? When do we feast and rejoice and celebrate his rest? Well, we do it every Sunday, don't we? On the first day of the week, the day of the greatest reversal in all history, which became the Christian Sabbath, from the day of his resurrection until the end of time, the day that death was unwound, when grave clothes were left folded up and forgotten in an empty tomb, where tears were cried for joy instead of sorrow, when the good king spoke words of peace and forgiveness to his people. And so every single Sunday, lest we forget or we forget to applause, we come together and we rest and rejoice in his triumph. And we tell the story to ourselves, don't we, and to our children again and again and again, the same old story. Because it truly is the best story ever told, the story we cannot hear enough of. And then we gather around the table, belonging to the good king, and we feast a feast that looks back and remembers the day he hung in shame to win our peace, but far, far more, a feast that looks forward in confidence to the day when the good king sits at the right hand of the good God and rules over the whole world to the joy of his brothers. So let's bow our heads and rejoice in him and then let's feast at his table. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you are a savior who wants joy and laughter for his people. We praise you that in our moment of helpless need, you overturned our sorrow and our tears into feasting and celebration. We praise you that the cross which the world and the flesh and the devil meant for evil, you used for untold good. So Lord, when we feel far from home, when so much in our lives and in our hearts still doesn't feel right, help us, we pray, to remember and to rejoice in you the Father who works all things for the good of his children and the brother who we delight in and in whose name we are heard in heaven even now. Amen.